Section 5, Book 3, Chapter 3, Part 2 of The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 2, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 3, Jurisdiction. Chapter 3, Bishops he had unquestionably been more or less intimate with some of the prominent personages whose arrest for lutheranism in the spring of fifteen fifty eight produced so immense a sensation it was not unnatural that on their trials they should seek to shield themselves behind his honored name but the detached fragments of conversation which were cited in support of vague general assertions even if correctly reported amounted to nothing in the face of the emphatic testimony by fray domingo de roja for the discharge of his conscience a few hours before his execution that he had never seen in carranza anything that was not catholic in regard to the roman church and all its councils definitions and laws and that when lutherans were alluded to he said their opinions were crafty and deceiving they had sprung from hell and the incautious could easily be deceived by them the credence due to the evidence of the lutherans on which so much stress was laid can be gauged by a subsequent case illustrative of the tendency to render carranza responsible for all aberrations of belief a certain gil tibobil de bonneville on trial in fifteen sixty four for lutheranism in toledo sought to palliate his guilt by asserting that he had heard carranza preach in the church of san augustin against candles and images and that confession was to be made to god and not to the priest this was too crude to be accepted and he was sternly told that it cast doubt on the rest of his confession for if carranza had thus preached publicly it would have come to the knowledge of the inquisition and he would have been punished whether the testimony acquired in the trials of the lutherans was important or not inquisitor-general valdez lost no time in using it to discredit carranza in the opinion of the sovereigns as early as may twelfth fifteen fifty eight in a report to charles v at eusta his assistance is asked in obtaining the arrest of a fugitive whose capture would be exceedingly important he had been traced to castro de Uriales, where he was to embark for flanders to find refuge with carranza or with his companion fray juan de villa garcia where he was sure of being well received that the real motive was to inure carranza with charles appears from valdez repeating the story to him in a report of june second adding that the fugitive had escaped and that information had been sent to philip in order that he might be captured it is reasonable to assume that whatever incriminating evidence could be obtained from the prisoners was promptly brought to the notice of the sovereigns and that inferences were unscrupulously asserted as facts at this critical juncture carranza delivered himself into the hands of his enemies in england and flanders he had employed the intervals of persecution in composing a work which should set forth the irrefragable truths of the catholic faith and guard the people from the insidious poison of heretical doctrine this was a task for which at such a time he was peculiarly unfitted he was not only a loose thinker but a looser writer diffuse rambling and discursive 
setting down whatever idea chanced to occur to him and wandering off to whatever subjects the idea might suggest moreover he was earnest as a reformer within the church realizing abuses and exposing them fearlessly in fact he declared in the prologue that his object was to restore the purity and soundness of the primitive church which was precisely what the heretics professed as their aim and precisely what the ruling hierarchy most dreaded worst of all he did this in the vulgar tongue unmindful of the extreme reserve which sought to keep from the people all knowledge of the errors and arguments of the heretics and of the contrast between apostolic simplicity and the splendid sacerdotalism of a wealthy and worldly establishment this he cast into the form of commentaries on the catechism occupying a folio of nine hundred pages full of impulsive assertions which taken by themselves were of dangerous import but which were qualified or limited or contradicted in the next sentence or the next page or perhaps in the following section no one i think can dispassionately examine the commentaries without reaching the conviction that carranza was a sincere and zealous catholic however reckless may seem many of his isolated utterances nor was his orthodoxy merely academic he belonged to the church militant and his hatred of heresy and heretics breaks out continually in season and out of season whether apposite or not to his immediate subject heretic arguments are not worthy of confutation it is enough to say that a doctrine is condemned by the church and therefore it is heretical the first duty of the king is to preserve his dominions in the true faith and to chastise those who sin against it even if heretics should perform miracles their disorderly lives and corrupted morals would be sufficient to guard the people from listening to them or believing them if they do not admit their errors they are to be condemned to death this is the best theology that a christian can learn and it was not more necessary in the time of moses than it is at present even in that age when theology was so favored a topic few could be expected to wade through so enormous a mass of confused thinking and disjointed writing and it was easy for carranza's enemies to garble isolated sentences by which he could be represented to the sovereigns as being at least suspect in the faith and suspicion of heresy was quite sufficient to require prosecution carranza himself after his book was printed seems to have felt apprehension and to have proceeded cautiously in giving it to the public a set of the sheets was sent to the marchioness of alcanizes and a dozen or more copies were allowed to reach spain where they were received in march fifteen fifty eight pedro castro bishop of cuenca obtained one and speedily wrote to valdez denouncing the writer as guilty of heretical opinions valdez grasped the opportunity and ordered melchor cano to examine the work cano took as a colleague fray domingo de suevas and had no difficulty in discovering a hundred and one passages of heretical import the preliminaries to a formal trial were now fairly under way the result of which could scarce be doubtful under inquisitorial methods if the royal and papal assent could be obtained necessary even to the inquisition before it could openly attack the primate of the spanish church despite the profound secrecy enveloping the operations of the inquisition it was impossible that in an affair of such moment 
there should not be indiscretions and carranza in flanders was advised of what was on foot his friends urged him not to return to spain but to take refuge in rome under papal protection but he knew this would irrevocably cost him the favor of philip for exaggerated jealousy of papal interference with the inquisition was traditional since the time of ferdinand and isabella and he virtually surrendered his case at once by instructing his printer martin nuncio not to sell copies of the commentaries without his express orders thus withdrawing it from circulation but little adverse impression seems as yet to have been made on philip when carranza was about to leave flanders the king gave him detailed instructions which manifest unbounded confidence he was to go directly to valladolid and represent the extreme need of money then he was to see queen mary of hungary charles's sister and persuade her to come to flanders then he was to hasten to eusta where philip through him unbosomed himself to his father revealing all his necessities and desires in family as well as in state affairs in short carranza was still one whom he could safely entrust with his most secret thoughts carranza with his customary lack of worldly wisdom threw away all the advantages of his position landing at laredo on august first he passed through burgos where he was involved in an unseemly squabble with the archbishop over his assumed right to carry his archiepiscopal cross in public he did not reach valladolid until the thirteenth and there he tarried busy ostensibly with a suit between his see and the marquis of camarasa over the valuable adelantamiento of cazorla but doubtless occupied also with efforts to counteract the intrigues of valdez then he performed his mission to mary of hungary and it was not until the middle of september that he set out on a leisurely journey to eusta valdez had taken care to forestall his visit an autograph letter of the princess juana to charles august eighth says that valdez has asked her to warn him to be cautious in dealing with carranza for he had been implicated by the lutheran prisoners and would already have been arrested had he been any one else charles was naturally impatient to see him not only to obtain explanations as to this but also to receive the messages expected from philip for which he had been waiting before riding to flanders carranza's delay in spite of repeated urgency from eusta could not but create a sinister impression and all chance of justification was lost for charles was prostrated by his fatal illness before carranza left valladolid and the end was near when he reached eusta about noon on september twentieth charles expired the next morning at half-past two carranza administering to him the last consolations his method in which formed one of the charges against him on his trial he had thrown away his last chance and the unexpected death of charles deprived him of one who might possibly have stood between him and his fate the plans of valdez were now sufficiently advanced for him to seek the papal authorization which alone was lacking and his method to obtain this was characteristically insidious the suprema addressed september ninth to paul the fourth a relation of its labors in discovering and prosecuting the lutheran heretics there was skilful exaggeration of the danger impending from a movement the extent of which could not be known and it was pointed out that sympathy with the sectaries might be entertained by officials of the inquisition itself by the ordinaries and the consultors so that extraordinary powers were asked to arrest and judge and relax those suspected or guilty 
even though they were persons holding a secular or pontifical and ecclesiastical dignity or belonging to any religious or other order as the inquisition already had jurisdiction over all but bishops it had not hesitated to arrest and try the dominican fray domingo de roja the self-evident object of this was to obtain surreptitiously under cover of the word pontifical some general expression that might be used to deprive carranza of his right to trial by the pope the dean of oviedo a nephew of valdez was sent to rome as a special agent to procure the desired brief whether royal sanction for this application was obtained does not appear but it probably was not at least at this stage carranza meanwhile had been vainly endeavoring to get copies of the censures on his book in order to answer them he appealed earnestly to his friends in philip's court and in rome but without awaiting their replies he pursued his policy of submission and on september twenty first the day of charles's death he wrote to sancho lopez de Odolora, a member of the suprema that he consented to the prohibition of his work provided this was confined to spain and that his name was not mentioned in this and what followed he has been accused of weakness but it is difficult to see what other course lay open to him he doubtless still considered his episcopal consecration a guarantee for his personal safety while his reputation for orthodoxy could be best conserved by not entering into a fruitless contest with the power irresistible in its chosen field of action a contest moreover which would have cost him the royal favor that was his main reliance in pursuance of this policy he descended to attempting to propitiate melchor cano by offering to do whatever he would recommend cano subsequently asserted with customary mendacity that carranza would have averted his fate had he adopted any of the means which he devised and advised to save him but it is difficult to imagine what more he could have done towards the close of november he wrote to valdez and the suprema and to other influential persons professing his submission he explained the reasons which had led him to write his book in the vernacular after commencing it in latin it could be readily suppressed for on reaching valladolid he had withdrawn the edition from the printer there were no copies in the bookshops and what he had brought with him he would surrender while the dozen or so that had been sent to spain could easily be called in as the recipients were all known then on december ninth he proposed to the suprema that the book should be prohibited in spanish and be returned to him for correction and translation into latin had the real object of valdez been the ostensible one of preserving the faith this would have amply sufficed the book would have been suppressed and the public humiliation of the archbishop of toledo so distinguished for his services to religion would have been an amply deterrent warning to all indiscreet theologians it was a not unnatural burst of indignation when in a letter to domingo de soto november fourteenth he bitterly pointed out how the heretics would rejoice to know that fray bartolome de miranda was treated in spain as he had treated them in england and flanders and that after he had burnt them to enforce the doctrines of his book it was pronounced in spain unfit to be read carranza's submission brought no results save to encourage his enemies who put him off with vague replies while awaiting the success of their application to the pope meanwhile he had reached toledo october thirteenth and had applied himself actively to his duties he was rigid in the performance of divine service he visited prisons hospitals and convents he put an end to the sale of offices and charging fees for licenses 
he revised the fee bill of his court he enforced the residence of parish priests and was especially careful in the distribution of preferment in short he was a practical as well as a theoretical reformer his charity was also boundless for he used to say that all he needed was a dominican habit and that whatever god gave him was for the poor thus during his ten months of incumbency he distributed more than eighty thousand ducats in marrying orphans redeeming captives supporting widows sending students to universities and in gifts to hospitals he was a model bishop and the resolute fidelity with which the chapter of toledo supported his cause to the end shows the impression made on a body which in spanish churches was usually at odds with its prelate he had likewise not been idle in obtaining favorable opinions of his books from theologians of distinction in view of the rumors of inquisitorial action there was risk in praising it yet nearly all those prominent in spanish theology bore testimony in its favor the general view accorded virtually with that of pedro guerrero archbishop of granada than whom no one in the spanish hierarchy stood higher for learning and piety the book he said was without error and being in castilian was especially useful for parish priests unfamiliar with latin wherefore it should be extensively circulated it was true that there were occasional expressions which taken by themselves might on their face seem to be erroneous but elsewhere it was seen that they must be construed in a catholic sense to this effect recorded themselves domingo and pedro de soto men of the highest reputations Garianero, Bishop of Almeria, Blanco of Orens, Cuesta of Leon, Delgado of Lugo, and numerous others. If some of these men belied themselves subsequently and aided in giving the finishing blow to their persecuted brother, we can estimate the pressure brought to bear on them. Valdez speedily utilized the power of the Inquisition to check these appreciations of the commentaries when at the university of alcala the rector the chancellor and twenty-two doctors united in declaring the work to be without error or suspicion of error save that some incautious expressions disconnected from the context might be mistaken by hasty readers valdez muzzled it and all other learned bodies and individuals by a letter saying that it had come to his notice that learned men of the university had been examining books and giving their opinions as this produced confusion and contradiction respecting the index which the inquisition was preparing all persons colleges and universities were forbidden to censure or give an opinion concerning any book without first submitting it to the suprema and this under pain of excommunication and a fine of two hundred ducats on each and every one concerned it was impossible to contend with an adversary armed with such weapons not content with this the rector of the university diego sobanos was prosecuted by the tribunal of valladolid for the part he had taken in the matter he was reprimanded fined and absolved ad codlam similar action was taken against the more prominent of those who had expressed themselves favorably and who for the most part were forced to retract the inquisition played with loaded dice dean valdez of oviedo meanwhile had succeeded in his mission to rome aided as rinaldus assures us by the express request of philip though this is more than doubtful 
The brief was dated January 7, 1559. It was addressed to Valdez and recited that, as there were in Spain some prelates suspected of Lutheranism, he was empowered for two years from the receipt of the brief, with the advice of the Suprema, to make investigation, and, if sufficient proof were found against any one and there was good reason to apprehend his flight, to arrest and keep him in safe custody, but as soon as possible the Pope was to be informed of it, and the prisoner was to be sent to him with all the evidence and papers in the case. With the exception of the provision against expected flight, this was merely in accordance with the received practice in the case of bishops. But it was the entering wedge, and we shall see how its limitations were disregarded. The brief was received April 8th. In place of complying with it and sending Carranza to Rome with the evidence that had been collected for nearly a year, a formal trial was secretly commenced. The fiscal presented a clamosa, or indictment, on May 6th, asking for Carranza's arrest and the sequestration of his property, for having preached, written, and dogmatized many errors of Luther. The evidence was duly laid before calificadores, or censors, who reported accordingly, and on the 13th there was drawn up a summons to appear and answer to the demand of the fiscal. Before proceeding further, in an affair of such magnitude, it was felt that the assent was required of Philip, who was still in Flanders. As recently as April 4th he had replied encouragingly to an appeal from the persecuted prelate, I have not wanted to go forward in the matter of your book, about which you wrote to me, until the person whom you were sending should arrive. He has spoken with me today. I had already done something of what is proper in this business. Not to detain the courier who goes with the good news of the conclusion of peace, I do not wish to enlarge in replying to you. But I shall do so shortly, and meanwhile I earnestly ask that you make no change in what you have done hitherto, and to have recourse to no one but me, for it would be in the highest degree disadvantageous. Philip evidently thought that only Carranza's book and not his person was concerned, that the affair was of no great importance, and his solicitude was chiefly to prevent any appeal to Rome, a matter in which he fully shared the intense feeling of his predecessors. When Carranza ordered his envoy to Flanders, Fray Hernando de San Ambrosio, to proceed to Rome and secure an approbation of the commentaries, he replied, April 19th, that all his friends at the court earnestly counseled against. It had been necessary to assure Philip of the falsity of the reports that he had done so, whereupon the king had expressed his satisfaction and had said that any other course would have displeased him. Advantage for which Carranza foolishly offered the opportunity was taken of this extreme jealousy to win him over. When the Dominican chapter met, in April 1559, there was open strife between him and Cano, over a report that Cano had styled him a greater heretic than Luther, and that he favored Cazala and the other prisoners. Carranza demanded his punishment for the slander and sought to defeat his candidacy for the provincialate. In this he failed. Cano's assertion that he had been misunderstood was accepted. He was again elected provincial, and Carranza unwisely carried his complaint to Rome. There it became mixed up with the question of Cano's confirmation, for Paul IV naturally resented the repeated presentation of that son of iniquity. 
Philip, on the other hand, could not abandon the protection of one whose fault, in papal eyes, was his vindication of the royal prerogative, and he interested himself actively in pressing the confirmation. Paul equivocated and lied and sought some subterfuge in which was found in Cano's consecration in 1552 as Bishop of Canaries, a post which he had resigned in 1553 which was to render him ineligible for any position in his order, and a general decree to that effect was issued in July. All this was skillfully used to prejudice Philip against Carranza. In letters of May 16th to him and of May 22nd and 25th to his confessor Bernardo de Fresneda, Cano, with great adroitness and small respect for veracity, represented himself as subjected to severe persecution, he had always been Carranza's friend. He had withheld for seven months his censure of the commentaries, and had yielded only to a threat of excommunication. And now Carranza was repaying him by intriguing against the confirmation in Rome? The truth being that it was not until the end of June that Carranza's agent reached there. It was a terrible thing, Cano added, if the archbishop, through his Italian general, could thus wrong him, and he could not defend himself. He was resolved to suffer in silence, but the persecution was so bitter that if the king did not speedily come to Spain, he would have to seek refuge in Flanders. What, in reality, were his sufferings and what the friendly work on which he was engaged are indicated by a commission issued to him, May 29th, granting him the extraordinary powers of a substitute inquisitor general and sending him forth on a roving expedition to gather evidence compelling everyone whom he might summon to answer whatever questions he might ask. The Suprema and Valdez, moreover, in letters of May 13th and 16th to Philip, adopted the same tone. Cano's labors throughout the affair had been great, and it was hoped that the king would not permit his persecution for the services rendered to God and his majesty. There need be no fear of injustice to Carranza, for the investigation was impartial and dispassionate. Philip had already been informed by Cardinal Pacheco, February 24th, and again May 13th, that Carranza had sent to the Pope copies of the favorable opinions of his book, asking that it be judged in Rome and that his episcopal privilege of papal jurisdiction be preserved. Whatever intentions he had of befriending Carranza were not proof against the assertions that to his intrigues was attributable the papal interference with Cano's election. On June 26th, he wrote to Cano, expressing his satisfaction and assuring him of his support in Rome, and, on the same day, to the Suprema, approving its actions as to the commentaries, and expressing his confidence that it would do what was right. In thus authorizing the prosecution, he ordered the archbishop's dignity to be respected, and he wrote to the Princess Juana that, to avoid scandal, she should invite him to Valladolid to consult on important matters, so that the trial could proceed without attracting attention. Philip's letters were received July 10th, but there was still hesitation, and it was not until August 3rd that the princess wrote, summoning Carranza in haste to Valladolid, where she would have lodgings prepared for him. This she sent, with secret instructions, by the hands of Rodrigo de Castro, a member of the Suprema. Carranza was at Alcala de Henares, whither diego ramirez inquisitor of toledo was also dispatched under pretext of publishing the edict of faith 
Carranza, who suspected a snare, was desirous of postponing his arrival at Valladolid until Philip, on whose protection he still relied, should reach Spain. Accordingly, he converted the journey into a visitation, leaving Alcala on the 16th and passing through Fuente del Saz and Talamanca to Torre Laguna, which he reached on the 20th. On the road he received intimations of what was in store, and at Torre Laguna, Fray Pedro de Soto came with the news that emissaries had already started to arrest him, which elicited from him a despairing and beseeching letter to Fresneda, the royal confessor. De Soto's report was true. Valdez dreaded as much as Carranza desired Philip's arrival. The delay on the road risked this if the device of the invitation to Valladolid was to be carried out. For his plans, it was essential that an irrevocable step should be taken in the king's absence, a step which should compromise Carranza and commit the Inquisition so fully that Philip could not revoke it without damaging the holy office in a way that to him was impossible. To allow Carranza to be at liberty, while investigating the suspicion of his heresy, as Philip had ordered, would leave the door open to royal or papal intervention. To seize and imprison him would leave Philip no alternative but to urge forward his destruction, while his dilatory progress could be assumed to cover preparations for a flight. Accordingly, on August 17th, the Suprema issued a commission, under the papal brief of January 7th, to Rodrigo de Castro to act with other inquisitors in the case, while, as justice required Carranza's arrest, Valdez commissioned de Castro, Diego Ramirez, and Diego Gonzalez, inquisitor of Valladolid, to seize the person of the archbishop and convey him to such prison as should be designated, at the same time sequestrating all his property, real and personal, and all his papers and writings. Simultaneously, Jean Cibrian, alguazil mayor of the Suprema, was ordered to cooperate with the inquisitors in the arrest and sequestration. Cibrian started the same day for Torre Laguna, where he kept his bed through the day and worked at night. The inquisitors came together, a force of familiars and others was secretly collected, and, by daybreak on the 22nd, the governor, the alcada, and the aguaziles of Torre Laguna were seized and held under guard. The house where Carranza lodged was surrounded. De Castro, Ramirez, Cibrian, and a dozen men ascended the stairs and knocked at the door of the antechamber. Fray Antonio de Utrilla asked who was there, and the dread response came, "'Open to the Holy Office!' It was the same at the door of Carranza's chamber. De Castro knelt at the bedside where Carranza had drawn the curtains and raised himself on his elbow. He begged Carranza's pardon with tears in his eyes and said his face would show his reluctance in performing his duty. Cibrian was called in and read the order of arrest. Carranza replied, These signores do not know that they are not my judges, as I am subject directly to the Pope. Then de Castro produced the papal brief from the bosom of his gown and read it out. Some say that Carranza fell back on his pillow, others that he remained imperturbable. He ordered out all the rest and remained for a considerable time alone with de Castro and Ramirez. End of Book 3, Chapter 3, Part 2 Recording by Kathleen Nelson, Austin, Texas, August 2010